When Harvard University began in 1636, its mission was that, quote, its students consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. That was Harvard. The YMCA began with this mission, quote, as a refuge of Bible study and prayer for young men seeking escape from the hazards of life on the streets. Princeton University began in 1746 as an evangelical alternative to Harvard and Yale who had both, who had both embraced deism at that point in the, their institution's history. All three organizations currently have nothing to do with Jesus Christ and his kingdom. In fact, they're all known for being staunchly secular. What happened? What happened to these organizations? It was not one major decision, but very slowly over a period of decades, small decisions were made to, to move these organizations away from their charter or from, from their founding mission. Mission drift happens very slowly over time through a series often of small decisions and circumstances. Now, this can happen to any organization. This can happen very easily to GCF. So what's going to keep us from drifting away from our mission in 30 years, 60 years, or 200 years from now? What are the things that we want our great, great, great grandchildren still to be excited about and committed to? Well, that brings us to GCF's mission. And this morning, I want to talk about our mission because it's the fall, and in the fall, everything kicks off for us. But it's been a while since I've addressed this subject, and our mission statement has changed slightly in the last year. So we're going to talk this morning about our mission, and it goes like this. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, discipleship, and evangelism. Can you throw up the chart for me, Nate? There's a graphic of it. We'll come back to this often this morning. We exist to glorify God through gospel-centered. There's the cross in the middle, worship, discipleship, and evangelism. So we're going to look at this mission statement this morning, phrase by phrase, beginning with the first one, and that is GCF exists to glorify God. Now, why begin here? Why begin with the glory of God? Because the Bible begins here. The Bible is intensely committed to the glory of God. The Bible says this, God creates for his glory, Isaiah 43. God predestines for his glory, Ephesians chapter 1. God creates the nation of Israel for his glory, Jeremiah 13, 11. God helps the poor and needy for his glory, Isaiah 61. God sent his son to suffer and die for his glory, John 12, John 17. God sanctifies us or changes us for his glory, Philippians 1. God will send his son again to judge the earth for his glory, 2 Thessalonians 2. And I could be, read literally hundreds of texts that say the same thing. Let me just read one more text, Romans 11, 33 to 36. This is at the end of Paul's incredible discussion of salvation and election. Paul writes these words, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. How about 1 Corinthians 10.31? So whatever you eat, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Okay, so what is the glory of God? The glory of God is simply the shining forth or the display of all that God is, all of his glorious attributes. What does that mean exactly? Well, today, as many of you know, the NFL begins. And because that happens today, I feel justified in bringing up Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Okay, so what is the glory of Pete Carroll? We could talk about his phenomenal USC coaching career. He won two national championships, four Rose Bowls, two Orange Bowls, and he won the Pac-10, which is now the Pac-12, which will cease to exist in a year or two. He won that seven times. And then there's his Seahawk career. In the last roughly 15 years, Pete Carroll's one of the most winningest coaches in the NFL. He's gone to two Super Bowls, and he would have won the second if they just would have given the ball to Marshawn Lynch with like 30 seconds left, but I'm not bitter about that play call. Pete Carroll is also known as being a very enthusiastic, positive, energetic coach. He's the oldest coach in the NFL. You never know that by watching him on the sidelines. But he's a very, very positive person, and he's a phenomenal leader. That's the glory of Pete Carroll. All those things describe who he is, his attributes, his accomplishments. The glory of God are simply all of, or is, all of the things that God has done and accomplished. It's the shining forth of his attributes. It's it's his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his patience, his compassion, his justice, his righteousness, his truth, his power, his wisdom, the fact that he is everywhere present in his creation right now. The fact that he spoke the universe into existence out of nothing, all that is the glory of God. And God does all that he does to display or to shine forth his own glory. Well, doesn't that make God an egomaniac? Imagine me saying, all that I do, I do for Dave Farley's glory. Now, if I said that, you would think Dave is incredibly conceited and arrogant. Why is it right for God to say that? Because God is a perfect being. And because God's a perfect being, he must esteem and value and love that thing in the universe that is most worthy of love, honor, esteem, and value. And what is that? Himself. Himself. Because he is the most worthy thing, the most valuable thing, the most glorious thing in all the universe, for God to remain just, he must esteem himself above everything else. And that's really good news for us. More on that in a moment. So how does the church glorify God? The church glorifies God when God's word is preached faithfully. The church glorifies God when the sacraments are observed weekly. The church glorifies God when God's praises are sung joyfully. When Christians live together in love, when your community groups helps one another move, 
when your community group gives money to a member in need, when you hug someone and tell them you are praying for their wayward child, God is glorified. The church is glorified when it performs discipline on a member who refuses to stop committing adultery. And that's because God wants his church pure to glorify himself. The church exists to glorify God. This is its primary purpose. And knowing the primary purpose of something really helps us know how to utilize that thing. What would you think if you saw someone this afternoon trying to play Frisbee with an iPad? Or how about trying to pound a nail in the wall with a golf club? Or how about trying to pull off your watch and kill a fly like it's a fly swatter? That particular person is not using that object for its primary purpose. The primary purpose of the church of Jesus Christ um, is not to make us feel good about ourselves. It's not to meet felt needs. It's not to help the poor and the needy, although the church should do that. It's not to advance a political cause or a political party. It's not primarily a social club. The primary purpose of the church is to glorify God. Therefore, we want all that we do, our singing, our preaching, our prayers, our worship, our serving, our giving, our community, we want all those things, our children's ministry, our counseling ministry, our youth ministry, we want all those things to exist to glorify God. We want to be extremely God-centered because God is extremely God-centered. And here's the incredibly good news. John Piper says it like this. He says, I know for a fact that two things are true. God wants to be glorified and John Piper wants to be happy. God has hardwired all of us with a desire to pursue our own happiness. And Piper says this, here's the way it works in God's economy. We are the most satisfied, the most joyful, the most fulfilled when we are pursuing the glory of God. Said another way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Piper calls this Christian hedonism because he knows that we're all hardwired to pursue our own happiness. But here's the good news. Our own happiness is found when we are glorifying God. So when we're glorifying God, we're happy and God is glorified. We're doing what God has made us to do. So when all is said and done, the glory of God is a wonderful thing. John Piper also makes this point. The Westminster Confession of Faith is written in the 1640s by a bunch of Presbyterians. Starts out like this. First question is, what is the chief end or purpose of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Piper says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. For all eternity, if you're a Christian, you will find all of your joy and satisfaction and delight in glorifying God, the purpose you were made for. That's why we exist. GCF exists to glorify God. That's the first and most important phrase. Okay, how about the next phrase? GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered, period. Many folks have recently jumped on the gospel-centered bandwagon. 
There are gospel-centered schools. There are gospel-centered books, gospel-centered children's ministry, gospel-centered underwater basket weaving, gospel-centered yoga, gospel-centered lawn care. The phrase gospel centrality is slapped on everything, making it lose all meaning and significance. So what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? Well, let me get it this way. In our culture, there are many different types of churches. There are gospel-denying churches, churches that refuse to affirm that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave, and that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Him. I'm referring here to Jehovah's Witnesses, Latter-day Saints, and other groups that are sub-Christian. Then there are gospel redefining churches, churches that redefine the gospel as the good news of health, wealth, and prosperity, or the good news of social justice. Then there are gospel-assuming churches. These churches affirm the gospel, but they assume the gospel is only for non-Christians. And once you understand the gospel, you move on to better things. So in these churches, often you hear very practical sermons, seven seven tips for a better marriage, five tips for better communication, three tips for better personal finances. In these churches, the gospel is abandoned or assumed. And when Jesus is mentioned, he's merely mentioned as a means to an end. Then there are gospel-embarrassed churches, churches that are afraid that if they talk about the gospel, including substitutionary atonement, the wrath of God, justice, mentioning things like repentance and heaven and hell, it will drive away the seekers. Then there are gospel-committed churches, churches that are fully committed to defending the glorious orthodox gospel, but again, they assume that message is just for non-Christians. Once they embrace it, you move on to more exciting topics like the end times or something else. Finally, there are gospel-centered churches. What are those? Churches that believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ, his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return is the main thing that we never ever move on from. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, one to five. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance. What's the first importance? The gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. The gospel is not the message of do better, try harder, read your Bible, pray, go to church, then God's going to love you and accept you. Every other religion is explained with two letters, D-O, do this, say this, pray this, go to this mountain, go to this place, and you'll be accepted. Christianity is explained with four letters, D-O-N-E, done. 
Jesus Christ has done everything, and I mean everything necessary in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to reconcile you to God. And all you have to do is turn away from your sins and trust in him, and you will be justified, declared righteous, and adopted by Almighty God. Christianity is not good advice. It's good news of what Christ has done for us. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. We never, ever, ever move on from the gospel, but only into a more profound understanding of the gospel. And that's because the gospel is what drives all of the Christian life. We want people to serve in the nursery because they understand how much of Jesus Christ has served them. We want people to forgive their spouses because they understand how much Jesus Christ has forgiven them. We want folks to give generously because they understand that God has given to them in an insanely generous fashion by giving them his own son free of charge. And we want people to love their spouses with sacrificial love because Christ loved us, the church, his bride, with sacrificial love. We want folks to evangelize their friends because they're so excited about the fact that they've been forgiven. And we want people to sing loud songs of joy on Sunday morning because they are fully aware that they have been saved from eternal conscious torment in hell for all eternity. When was the last time you were so astonished by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you were motivated to serve give, evangelize, forgive, and sing. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered, next word, is worship. Okay, so what exactly is worship? In one sense, worship is all of life. This is a helpful definition I found in the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. I'm sure you all read, have read that cover to cover. Page 969, it says this, Worship is homage. It's an attitude and an activity designed to recognize and describe the worth of a person. So how do we perform this homage at GCF? How do we worship at GCF? And Again, in one real sense, all of life for Christians is one giant act of gratitude or worship for what God has done for us in Christ. At the same time, this mission statement is really describing what we do corporately as a church. And we worship corporately on Sunday mornings in a variety of ways. We sing together. We serve together. Um, you hear preaching. John Piper describes pre preaching as expository exaltation. Preaching is part of the worship, and so is the Lord's Supper. So are baptisms. So is prayer. So is Sunday school, so is fellowship. Those are all aspects of worship. And through these activities, we are weekly, consistently reminding ourselves that the triune God is worthy of all of our adoration and praise and honor and respect. And we are reminding ourselves each week that God is by far the most valuable thing in the universe, more valuable than all of the things that money can buy. And we're reminding ourselves every Sunday as we worship, that God is the source of all true and lasting joy and happiness. We want more and more people 
to join us on Sunday morning to make much of God because that's why we exist. That's why God created us, is to come together as the church and to make much of God, to worship Him and to honor Him. And to that end, please consider inviting your friends to church. So back to the circle here, that's the first part, worship. So if you're here on Sundays worshiping and you're not involved, the question is, what are the next steps for you? And that brings us to the next phrase in our mission statement, GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship. And the next is discipleship. Okay, what is a disciple? Matthew 28, 18 through 19, these are Christ's final instructions, his marching orders to the church of Jesus Christ. He says this, or Matthew says this about Jesus, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. A disciple is simply a follower. There are disciples of Martha Stewart. There are disciples, unfortunately, of Mao. There are millions of disciples of PewDiePie. If you're under the age of 30, you know what I mean. I, I discovered this morning that one of the most popular influencers in the world right now has over 800 million followers. Do you know who it is? Probably not because you're all Americans and most of you don't play soccer. Cristiano Ronaldo has 800 million, close to 800 million followers, disciples. If you're a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus. You are a disciple. If you're not following Jesus, you have to ask the question, am I really one of his disciples? The Great Commission is a commission to tell the whole world that they must repent of their sins and follow Jesus. This is a summons, not an invitation. It's a summons. We all must repent of our sins and follow Jesus. That makes us a disciple. So a disciple is a follower, so what is discipleship? Discipleship is simply helping others follow Jesus, who in turn will help others follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus was a discipler. As many of you know, he chose 12 men to follow him, and of the 12, he, he chose three, Peter, James, and John, to follow him very, very closely. And he told all of them, when I leave, I want you to go and do the same. Go out and find a small group of people, and help them follow me. The Apostle Paul was also <clears throat> a discipler. 2 Timothy 2, 2, writing to young Timothy, Paul says this, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice that this text represents four generations of followers. You have Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and all the others who will follow these faithful men. Paul wanted spiritual grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and so should we. Discipleship means spiritual multiplication. David Platt writes this, from the start, God's design has been for every single disciple of Jesus to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples until the gospel spreads to all peoples. Said another way, discipleship is simply laboring over a period of time in the lives of a few, helping them follow Jesus, and then encouraging them to do the same, to go out and find more people, 
to labor with and help follow Jesus. And the cycle goes on and on and on until eventually thousands of people, because of your influence, are following Jesus. Well, what is GCF's specific strategy uh, for discipleship? It starts with one simple goal. We want every person here involved in a discipling relationship. So can you put up the Venn diagram? I think that's next. There we go. So at GCF, there are many, many ways to be involved in a discipling relationship. Uh, the two primary ways are through our community groups right here and then discipleship groups. So community groups, these are sermon-based discussions, larger groups, join anytime, 10 to 20 people usually, although some are like 50 people, pretty much church plants that need to split. Um, and they're co-ed. And then you have discipleship groups. These are much smaller curriculum-based uh, discussions, weekly home group, join in the fall, gender-based, just guys, just gals, three to six people. And then our counseling ministry is also a vital part of our discipling efforts. Now notice that all three of these ministries have the same goal. They're all trying to help other people follow Jesus who will do the same. And so we want everyone here to really grasp the vision for this and be involved somehow in a discipling relationship. You're probably thinking, that sounds amazing, Dave. How do I get involved? I have the answer. Text the word D-I-S-C to the number, anyone know? 94,000. It, sh it should appear magic. There it is. There it is. Okay. So, uh, right now is a great time for you to join a discipleship group because they're just launching. I think we're going to have a little less than 30 discipleship groups this fall and a little less than 20 community groups this fall, so roughly 50 groups. That's really encouraging. So if you're not involved in one of these groups, you're missing out. In my humble but accurate opinion, you're missing out because we really believe that Christianity is not like golf or tennis. It's a team sport like football or soccer or volleyball. Other people need to be around you to help you grow in godliness. That's how you're going to thrive. And so we encourage you, if you're new this morning and you want to get involved, again, text the word DISC to the number 94,000. Okay. All right. Do it right now. All right. So, that brings us to the next word in the statement. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, discipleship, and last but not least is evangelism. The last phrase. Let me read a wonderful text that exhorts us to be involved in the work of evangelism. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes these words, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Every Christian has the incredible privilege and obligation, but mostly a privilege to tell a lost and dying and broken and confused and hurting world how they can be reconciled to God. What a privilege. You, Christian, have the best news in the world. Far greater news than telling someone you just won the lottery. 
We have great news. And our world desperately needs to hear the incredibly good news of full and free forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So what's our strategy for evangelism? It's rather simple. Many, many years ago, I was at a conference for pastors, and the keynote speaker, church, a pastor of a large church, um, asked this question, how many of you in the audience, a large audience, uh, became Christians through a relationship? And the vast majority of hands went up. And that's true for most of us. Most of us came to faith in Christ through a relationship, through a parent or a sibling or a coworker or a neighbor. Someone said, hey, would you come to church with me? Or have you considered the claims of Jesus? Or would you read the Gospel of Mark with me? Few of us come to faith in Christ through a randomly placed tract or a big blimp that says, trust Jesus. Most of us come to faith in Christ through divinely ordained relationships. And so our strategy is simple. Evangelism is not a program, it's a relationship. So we want to encourage all of you Christians to pray like crazy. God, show me who you want me to befriend, who you want me to love, who you want me to spend time with, and then pray, God, give me boldness and courage to open my mouth and explain to this person the incredibly good news of Jesus Christ. And if you are a gospel-centered Christian, and if you are astonished and amazed by grace, that's going to flow out of you naturally, because we talk about the things that we're excited about, don't we? So that's our strategy. It's not super complicated. We want to encourage you to befriend someone, love them, pray for boldness, invite them to church, and see what God does. And that brings us back to the circle. Notice how there is movement in the circle Step one is we want worshipers. We want people to show up on Sunday mornings willing and eager to worship Jesus Christ. If that's you, we're so glad you're here. Then the question is, okay, what's the next step? If I'm here on Sunday, what's the next step? The next step is to get involved in a discipleship group. And to do that, you text which number? 94,000, the word disc, okay? And if someone's being discipled, they're going to grow in their love for the lost, and they're going to grow in their desire to reach the lost, which brings us here to the next circle, evangelism. So if you're a disciple, if you're a Christian, and you're wondering, what do I do next? Again, pray, God, show me who you want me to invest in and love and pray for. And if that's happening, we'll have more worshipers, and this, the cycle begins again. Worship leads to discipleship, which leads to evangelism, which leads to more worshipers, and that's the goal. And all this is driven by the gospel, and all this is done for the glory and fame of God. What's your next step this morning? Sir Ernest Shackleton left London in 1914 with the goal of hiking across Antarctica. A month after setting out, Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, was trapped by the Antarctic ice pack, and a few months later, the ice crushed the ship, and 29 crewmen endured howling gales in temperatures of minus 50 below, living on rations and dead penguins and seals. They had to do something. So they hiked to the edge of the ice pack and launched three 20-foot lifeboats into the coldest, wildest ocean on planet Earth. The three crews rode 100 miles to a rocky island, a small, teeny-tiny island. 
After repairing one of the lifeboats, Shackleton and five others set out again for a whaling station island over 800 miles away. They had a long ways to go. Beset with storms and often drenched by icy water, they finally landed on the island. Three of the six men were too exhausted to continue, but Shackleton and two others set out to cross the island equipped with nothing but a compass and 90 feet of rope. These were incredibly manly men. They marched for 36 hours straight, crossed glaciers, scaled 5,000-foot peaks, traversed cliffs, and when they finally arrived at the whaling station, no one recognized them. This true story has all the ingredients of greatness. These men traveled great distances over great mountains, through great seas and winds, in great cold, with great amounts of ice and snow. And their adventure included great hunger, great courage, great leadership. Finally, the story had a great ending. They all survived. I think all of us, deep down inside, want to be part of something great, some great adventure, some great accomplishment, some great discovery, some great act of heroism. And here's the good news. We can be part of something great. We can be part of a local church, God's only plan to disciple the world. What God has called us to is far greater than traversing Antarctica, climbing Mount Everest, or flying to the moon. It's far greater than making massive amounts of money, retiring when you're 50, and having your own private yacht moored next to your own private island. It's far greater than climbing the corporate ladder, having a nice house, having nice stuff, being the envy of all your friends on social media. We have been invited by the risen Christ to worship him make disciples, and evangelize the nations, all for his glory. What a mission. What a mission. And you all are invited to be part of it. And the question is, will you join us on this exciting mission? Let's pray together.